Hello, everybody. This is Devin Boker, and you are listening to The Wildlife, the official podcast of the nonprofit of the same name that is aiming to interrupt systemic barriers of exclusion in STEM and the outdoors. You can learn more at www.thewildlife.blog, and you can support us at paypal.me slash thewildlife or as a monthly member at patreon.com slash thewildlife. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thewildlife. Now today, we're doing something a little bit different. Most of what we do, uh, as the name would suggest, is uh, wildlife focused, uh, or or interviewing scientists, uh, talking about different um, concepts that uh, intertwine um, um, natural parts of climate and ecosystem and and interactions between species and, and things like that. This, this is the first part in an ongoing series that's not going to be consecutive, it's intermittent, so it's not, uh, the, every episode from now on is not going to be a continuation of this part, we're just going to come back to it uh, every so often. But this is the first part in an ongoing series that is examining our connections and impact on the environment, uh, analyzing sustainability, and our changing climate. There's a lot going on in the world, there's a lot of headlines. Um, in general, but, but especially in relation to, to climate and uh, sustainability initiatives and, and decisions that governments are making and risk to the environment and what's a risk and what isn't and all kinds of stuff and things just floating through the airwaves and, and through the internet, it's hard to make sense of it all. And so what this is, is it's aimed at laying the groundwork for understanding these complicated issues from a variety of perspectives. So uh, parts one through nine are, are really focused on that groundwork, uh, some of the general information, you know, what is what is uh, population and what is uh, the market's role? What, what are the commons? Uh, things like that. While parts 10 through eh, 20-ish are going to be placing the first half into a real-world context, examining issues and controversies surrounding deforestation, overfishing, recycling, and e-waste, among many others. In part one, we want to examine the problem with overpopulation and scarcity. See, I was born in 1992. That year, the world population was 5.4894 billion. 29 years later, we've reached 7.9 billion and are on track to hit nearly 10 billion by 2050, which is in another 29 years. We have more people on this planet than ever before. Our population held steady for thousands of years, but the Industrial Revolution allowed us to skyrocket, increasing fourfold in the last 100 years. A world full of that many people has us scared. Will there be mass migrations, mass starvation, more conflict, disease? We'll be living stacked on top of each other like overcrowded megacities, like, like on Coruscant. Will our conflicts revolve around water and food? Are we going to become so focused on trying to sustain ourselves that the environment falls into even a greater state of collapse? Or is all that just a bunch of silliness? Overpopulation is a dangerous myth. 
long ago in an essay on the principle of population. An Anglican minister by the name of Thomas Malthus argued that because human population grows exponentially, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, and yet resources typically grow linearly, that's 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, it was only a matter of time before the human population outgrew its resources. In other words, the biggest factor in looking at environmental impact is the rate of our population's growth. Ultimately, if we're going to follow this logic, the future of humankind is destined to be rife with resource scarcity, conflict over what resources remain, and the other consequences of compact living conditions. War, disease, and famine are inevitable. According to Malthus, a population like we have today should be impossible. Malthus believed that there were two types of checks on overpopulation. The first kind, consequential, like war, famine, disease. And the second kind, preventative, like moral restraint and abstinence. This is where things take a turn. According to Malthus, helping the poor is just about one of the worst, most counterproductive things that you can do to reduce environmental impact and to avoid these possible calamities because basically you're helping to ensure the population grows. Also, women were at fault for not exercising more moral constraint in the number of children they were having. Poor people and women. If you can't see the bias, where's the blame or even some semblance of accountability towards the wealthy? What about men? What about the socioeconomic institutions? These arguments remove blame from political and economic systems, the wealthy and, and, and men, and it pushes the blame onto the poor and women. Take the Irish potato famine, for example. A Malthusian might blame the Irish. In fact, they did. They might say that the millions who died did so as a result of natural consequence. Overpopulation will eventually lead to disease and famine to keep you in check, right? Except that idea ignores that the only real reason the famine was as bad as it was is that England had so many actively anti-Irish policies in place and intentionally blocked aid to the country. In fact, the English blamed the Irish, saying they were being punished by God and therefore no one should interfere. The famine wasn't due to natural consequence. It was man-made. The Malthus essay was widely read by the elite. And it eventually became the inspiration behind calls for population control, forced contraceptives, and sterilization, and uh, other means. Ironically, Malthus himself saw birth control as immoral, like many in society at the time, on a religious basis. Malthus's ideas would go on to provide some inspiration to the likes of Charles Darwin in his development of the theory of evolution by natural selection, as well as Francis Galton and the eugenics movement. The eugenics movement was a cocktail of pseudoscience, nationalism, ableism, and racism, which aimed to improve the gene pool by weeding out undesirables, leading to the beliefs held by the Nazis in their attempt to create a master race. Malthusian thinking has led to violent population control efforts that unfairly target the poorest and most marginalized people in our societies, many of whom are the least responsible for environmental degradation to begin with. 
it diverts attention away from the actual causes of that degradation. Malthusian thinking also calls for greater restraints on women, even though it's been shown that expanding women's rights actually slows population growth. More on that in a minute. Fast forward to 1974 to a pair, Ehrlich and Holdren, and their iPad equation. The two are what you would call neo-Malthusians. They carried many of the same beliefs, but they also wanted to account for how differing lifestyles might also impact, well, impact. And they developed the following equation, I equals P times A times T, in which I is the impact on the environment, which is found by taking P, population, A, uh, a measure of affluence, because wealthier folks tend to have a higher impact, times rate of technology use, because technology can reduce environmental impacts. What they determined is that population is still the most important factor in understanding environmental impact, but those impacts may be lessened by affluence in technology. In other words, poor and developing countries were still to blame. Reality is that development has a widely varying impact on the environment. Initially, the impact is greater as the rate of development is at its highest, but once a country reaches a certain level of wealth, that impact begins to decrease as the country develops regulations, better systems, infrastructure. How much impact is too much? The IPAT can be calculated in different ways to see how much of an impact a certain number of people at a certain standard of living will have on the environment. Carrying capacity is a population that can be sustained in an area over time. In nature, that's super dependent on ecosystem factors, but our technology and lifestyle have had a major impact on any genuine estimations of human carrying capacity. It's simply too variable. One way of considering a locality's capacity might be by looking at a person or a group's ecological footprint. It's something that can be calculated in order to estimate how much of the Earth's surface would be required to support a population based on the number of resources needed to sustain that particular lifestyle. If you check the episode notes on this, or even the uh, blog post that's connected, there is a link for a website where you can calculate your own ecological footprint. Then there are the cornucopian population theorists who see the population itself as a resource and see innovation as the key. Why? Well, when resources are scarce, people are going to innovate. At least that's the idea. The more people there are, the more minds are coming up with new ideas to solve the issues, right? For an example, one could look to the Green Revolution. Society developed a plethora of agricultural innovations that led to greater yields, therefore more food availability for a growing population. Granted, there was and continued to be great environmental and social cost. The thing is, the population as a resource view ignores some important geographical aspects of population scarcity. Scale. The scale of food production is not taken into account nor is its impacts on local communities in comparison to those of faraway places. Just because yields are higher or more food is produced doesn't mean that food is being distributed evenly. Hunger and starvation might still be widespread in a locality, even if they're producing enough food. The world produces 1.5 times the amount of food needed to feed the entire world, yet an estimated 690 million go to bed hungry 
every night. Population growth rates have been declining since the 1960s, moving towards zero population growth, in which there's equal numbers of births and deaths, and therefore no net increase in population. What is causing the decline? The demographic transition model, or DTM, is a model of population change that suggests that the population growth and decline is based on the stage of development and type of economic activities. Stage one, you have a high death rate, high birth rate, and low or no population growth. In stage two, your death rate falls, but birth rate stays high, so you have high population growth. Stage three, death rate's low, birth rate starts to fall, population growth is still high, but it's slowing down. In stage four, the last stage, your death rate is low, your birth rate is low, so you have low or no population growth. The DTM was based on European patterns of population growth and development from 1800 until the present, but the model has been applied around the world. If we use this model, most countries in the world have actually made it to the final stages of DTM, while others are currently in the midst. Currently developed countries, on average, have taken roughly 80 years to make it through the stages of DTM, while others are catching up. In fact, many countries have done so remarkably quickly. Bangladesh, for example, was in stage one during the late 60s, early 70s, but it made it to stage four by 2015. Iran went through all four stages in 10 years. In part, this is because as more countries make their way through DTM, the more there are to assist others, either directly or indirectly, in expediting their DTM journey, whether that's available technology, resources, what have you. No matter how you look at it, Increasing the standard of living in other countries is a win-win-win for the world. In other words, bettering the life of someone on the opposite side of the globe is personally beneficial to you. This is why anti-foreign aid arguments really hold no ground whatsoever. Whether or not your motivation is altruistic and that you want everyone to live a better life, or morally questionable, like you don't want refugees coming into your neck of the woods for whatever reason, helping others is the greatest solution to a better world. World poverty levels are lower than ever, and our growth rate is leveling out. That's a good thing. What the DTM does not account for is non-economic factors that might affect population growth. Around the world, women's rights, education, and literacy rates are correlated with low fertility rates. There's some question about whether the low fertility rates lead to higher education and literacy, or if it's the other way around. However, lower fertility rates are also associated with women's empowerment, access to health care, and ability to make reproductive decisions on their own. In other words, a higher standard of living is also connected to decline in birth rate and a leveling out of population growth. Human 12 billion may never, ever be born at all. That's the reality of population growth. A new study projects the world population, which now stands at 7.8 billion, to peak in 2064 at 9.7 billion and then fall to 8.8 billion by 2100. In fact, many countries will see their populations reduced by as much as half by 2100. That's not because of mass deaths or anything like that. It's simply as a result of a, a slowing in uh, the birth rate and therefore the replacement rate of the population. Global overpopulation is largely a myth. It's xenophobic, racist, classist, scare tactics. 
Think about it. When you hear about overpopulation concerns, you hear reference to Africa as a whole, India, and China. In other words, places where impoverished people of color live. Can localities become overpopulated? Absolutely. Are there problems that come with that? Well, not so much as the cause. Problems associated with overpopulation are a result of systems failure to take care of its people through the distribution of resources. Poverty and hunger are more so the result of greed than an increase in people. And it doesn't have to be that way. Those problems are man-made. They can be solved by humans. As we develop, our education levels will increase. Our standards of living will increase. Our birth rates will drop. The fear that's been instilled in us, a vision of a future that will never come to pass, or at least one that we can avoid now, now that we know how to curve it. We also have to reconcile that just because our staggeringly large population won't lead to doom doesn't mean we don't and won't have consequences to mitigate. A change in climate, for example. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future installments of this series. Uh, next one, the, the part two, is going to be looking at, uh, well, the role of the markets as a whole. Can markets save the world? Are they what got us here? We'll do a deep dive. Thanks for listening. I'm Devin Boker, and this is The Wildlife. Life.